the Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home. Five online encounters that turn deadly. Social media is considered a gift by some, but for others, this increasingly connected world can be cruel and relentless. The stories on this list showcase how our online encounters while fun for some, can just as quickly turn fatal for others. These are five online encounters that turn deadly. Number five, Janelle Potter. In a small town in eastern Tennessee, Janelle Potter was a sweet but naive girl who led a sheltered life thanks to her overprotective parents. However, underneath that childlike, innocent exterior, lay a calculated and manipulating woman. Victims Billie Jean Hayworth and Billy Payne were at home on January 31, 2012, when they were mercilessly killed. Billy was shot in the head and his throat had been slashed. His partner, Billie Jean, was killed with her infant child still in her arms, the child left unharmed. But the reason for the killings were a little more baffling. Janelle and Billy were once good friends, and he introduced her to his cousin Jamie Curd. Janelle and Jamie ended up dating, but then things began to get strange. Janelle started telling her parents and boyfriend that she was being bullied and harassed. She said people sent her threatening private messages online saying she was too pretty to live, and most of this she blamed on Billie Jean for being jealous. Then Janelle's mother Barbara began receiving emails from a person named Chris. He claimed to work for the CIA and said he was a former school friend of Janelle's. They communicated frequently and eventually developed a strange relationship. 
Barbara was so convinced with what Chris was telling her that they began to refer to each other as mother and son. He told her that Billy Jean and Billy were both evil. He accused Billy of being a drug dealer and Billy Jean as a whore and that the couple wanted to rape and murder Janelle because she was a virgin. Barbara soon shared the information with her husband Marvin, a former Vietnam War soldier, as well as to Janelle's boyfriend, and all three agreed that both Billy and Billy Jean had to die. It was Marvin and Jamie that stormed in and shot the couple in January of 2012. Afterward, police immediately interviewed the Potters, knowing the friendship between Janelle and Billy had broken down. Soon, Jamie Curd was interviewed, and it was here when he called Marvin, and police obtained his confession on record. In another twist, during the investigation, it was revealed the emails from Chris originated from the same IP address as that of Janelle's. Further study of the emails showed it had the same spelling errors and writing style as hers, too. Investigators believe Janelle had created an online persona and fabricated the cruel online messages, making her parents and her boyfriend believe she was actually bullied. Both Janelle and Barbara Potter were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Her father Marvin was given two life sentences and Jamie just one after entering a plea deal. Number 4. Christine To everyone he spoke with, Chris Marquise was a grown man with a wife and kids. He operated a buy-and-sell shop online from his Fairhaven, Vermont home, selling CB radio equipment to enthusiasts. The problem was that Chris was only a 17-year-old kid living with his mom, and worse, he was defrauding customers by taking their money and not upholding his side of the deal. It was in one transaction police believe he encountered 35-year-old trucker Chris Dean from Pearson, Indiana. The burly six-foot-tall driver is described by people who knew him as good-humored and helpful. Like Marquise, Dean also fell in love with CB radios and was actually a licensed ham operator. After talking online, the deal between the two was an exchange between a Ranger RCI 2990 for a Cobra 2000 CB radio. The former is a high-end radio worth at least $800, while the latter is an older model costing about $400. The deal was unusual, but Dean still sent the RCI on the flip side, Marquise had no intention of keeping his end of the bargain, and instead of sending the Cobra 2000, sent a broken mobile radio just so he could give out a tracking number. When Dean received the radio, he was outraged and called Marquise several times threatening him and also sent various hostile emails. By all accounts, Marquise was worried, but in the end dismissive of the threats. On March 19, 1998, a UPS driver knocked on the door where Marquise was living. His mother took the package up to her son, who proceeded to open it. Inside the big box was a smaller styrofoam box. The moment it was handled, the package exploded, sending Chris and his mom to the ground. His mother, Sheila, lost most of the fingers on her right hand and suffered a severe knee injury. Chris had abdomen holes, severe burns, and shrapnel wounds. Much of his left thigh was gone, and he later died from his injuries. During the investigation, police realized Marquise had angered a lot of people online with a shady business, including Christine. He was eventually found and charged with transporting an explosive device with intent to kill and injure. Despite entering a not guilty plea, evidence showed Dean had pieces of styrofoam and other materials used to make a similar bomb inside his home. 
In his backyard, there were signs he ignited a prototype bomb prior to sending one to Marquise. Furthermore, a friend of Dean's had said he was going to send this guy a package in the mail and boy is he going to be surprised. Chris Dean is currently serving a life sentence behind bars for murder. Number 3. J.R. Robinson John J.R. Robinson was known around his Kansas City, Missouri neighborhood as a personable man with a winning smile. He was a dotting father who made it a point to attend his children's soccer game and band activities. He was a successful businessman too, always talking about new ventures and even helped found a nearby Presbyterian church. But behind the all-American facade was a sinister man that got off on BDSM, torture, kidnapping, and murder. Starting as early as 1969, J.R. had several run-ins with the law. He was arrested for embezzling $30,000 and forging his credentials as an x-ray technician. He had broken his parole and moved to Chicago, embezzling more firm funds there. By 1975, he created a phony medical consulting firm and was charged with mail and securities fraud. In 1982, he sexually propositioned his neighbor's wives, which resulted in at least one fistfight with a husband. Then, by 1984, he began his murder spree. He started two fake companies and hired 19-year-old Paula Godfrey to act as a sales representative. One day, Godfrey told friends and family she was leaving for training and was never heard from again. Her parents filed a missing persons report and just days later, they got a typewritten letter with her signature saying she was okay and that she did not want to see her family. The investigation was terminated shortly after. The following year, Robinson met Lisa Stasi and her four-month-old daughter Tiffany. Lisa was staying at a battered women's shelter and Robinson promised to give her a job and apartment in Chicago. He asked her to sign several blank pieces of stationery and then got in touch with her brother and sister-in-law. He informed them that baby Tiffany needed to be adopted because the mother had committed suicide. He charged the brother various legal fees before they received the girl, along with fake adoption papers he forged with lawyer's signatures. As for Lisa Stasi, she was never heard from ever again. Catherine Clampett, who was 27 years old, also disappeared in 1987 after she moved to Kansas City when Robinson hired her as an employee. Then from 1987 to 1993, Robinson was in jail for fraud and parole violations. It was here he met prison librarian Beverly Bonner. The two developed a relationship, and when Robinson was released, Bonner left her husband and moved to Kansas to work with him. He arranged for her alimony checks to be forwarded to a Kansas P.O. box, and then shortly after, Beverly mysteriously disappeared. At this time, J.R. began frequenting social sites using the codename Slave Master, where he began actively looking for women who would play the role of his submissive partner. He reached out to Sheila Faith and her wheelchair-bound daughter, Debbie. Debbie had spina bifida, and Robinson posed as a philanthropist and wealthy businessman willing to give Sheila a job. The mother and daughter moved from California to Kansas City, where they both immediately disappeared. Faith's pension checks were cashed in by Robinson for the next seven years. JR became well-known on online BDSM sites where he propositioned women to be his sex slave. Polish national Isabella Luika signed a 115-item contract agreeing to this 
and turning over total control of her life to him. She then disappeared sometime in 1999. Then Suzette Troughton moved to Kansas to serve as Robinson's sex slave as well, and she too disappeared. In 2000, J.R. was arrested after a woman complained of sexual battery and of him stealing her sex toys. The theft charge paved the way for investigators to obtain a warrant to search his property, and what they found on his farm was shocking. Officers discovered two decaying bodies of women stored in 85-pound chemical drums. The women were identified as that of Suzette and Isabella. In Missouri, where he had a storage facility, police found three more chemical drums containing more corpses. These were identified as Sheila, Debbie, and Beverly Bonner, and all of the women were killed with blunt force trauma to the head. The remains of Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett have never been found. Robinson was given the death penalty for his crimes. His total victim count is seven officially, but it's believed he may have killed many more women over the years. Number 2. Christian Grothier Christian Grothier of Germany spent hours and hours online, using the nicknames Rosenboy0207 and Riddick300. He perpetually flirted and chatted with women, charming them with love poems and pictures. For him, the internet was a fantastic way to meet people. It made it easy to strike up a conversation, and he said that almost everyone in the conversations were looking for sexual contact. Christian admits he built up to 300 contacts and had met more than 100 women in person. This was his life, his family, but eventually he took it too far. As Rose and Boy, he met 26-year-old Jessica Kay. The two agreed to meet on June 5, 2008 in Stade, Germany. According to him, they both agreed to have outdoor sex, but instead got into a heated argument. He added that he only touched her on the throat, and to his horror, she suddenly dropped dead. Christian claimed he killed her by mistake, but prosecutors believe otherwise. Her body was found 14 days after the two had met, it was badly decomposed, so it was impossible to determine the actual cause of death. Just 12 days after the murder, Christian once again took online and arranged to meet another female user. This time it was a woman named Regina B., a mother of three. They agreed to meet at her apartment where they had sex. Afterwards, she cooked him a meal and the two headed out for a walk. It was here where Christian then attacked her, stabbing her 12 times in the back using a bread knife and 14 times in the chest. Her body was found by a passerby the following day. However, Christian would offer up a different explanation of the events. He claims that after consensual sex, Regina B. demanded money from him, adding that if he didn't pay up, she was going to go to the cops and accuse him of rape. He said this caused him to remember a childhood trauma, wherein his father raped his mother. He saw red and stabbed her. He also claimed to have suffered a mental blackout during the attack, but during the trial, the court didn't buy that the man was insane. He continued to insist that out of the 100 or so women he had met, the rest are still alive and that he's not a killer. Nevertheless, Christian was charged with two counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Number 1. Philip Markov Philip Markov led a mysterious double life. 
In one, he was a successful medical student studying at the Boston School of Medicine and engaged to his college sweetheart, Megan McAllister. But in the other, he also frequented casinos, gaining a considerable debt over $130,000. In April of 2009, Boston police began investigating a series of robberies and assaults reported by several women. These females all advertised erotic services online on Craigslist and had made plans to meet their client at nearby hotels. The first victim was identified as Tricia Leffler, an escort set to meet a man at the Weston Hotel. But once there, she was bound, gagged, and then robbed at gunpoint. Four days later, Julissa Brisman was found murdered in her Marriott hotel room. Police believe she fought off the robbery, which resulted in her being shot multiple times. Julissa had also placed an ad on Craigslist offering erotic massage services, and she was supposed to meet a man named Andy inside her hotel room. Days later, there was the attempted robbery of Cynthia Melton, who was an exotic dancer offering lap dance services. She was supposed to meet a client at the Holiday Inn Express in Warwick, Mass., but was instead robbed. Police were alarmed as all these attacks happened within just a few days of one another. Surveillance footage in the hotel showed a young man with clean-cut blonde hair and a black windbreaker at the scene of the crimes. During the investigation, cops traced an electronic trail back to Markov. This included the email conversations between him and one of the victims. When Markov was linked to the crime, his fiancée, Megan McAllister, initially stood by him. However, police secured evidence found in their apartment including women's underwear belonging to 14 different females. Four of those belonged to two of the victims. There were also zip ties as well as bullets matching those at the crime scene. Markov pleaded not guilty during trial. While in jail, he had attempted suicide several times, the first by hanging himself using shoelaces, the second by attempting to slash his wrist using a spoon. It wasn't until August 15, 2010, what would be the supposed anniversary of their wedding, when Markov successfully committed suicide by slashing major arteries in his legs, ankles, and carotid using a self-fashioned razor from a prison-issued pen. He used plastic bags to make sure there was no blood flowing out of the cell, swallowed toilet paper to prevent resuscitation, wrapped his head with a plastic bag, and covered himself with a blanket to prevent immediate detection. So there were five online encounters that turned deadly. Death by social media is a scary thought. As our world becomes more connected online, it's hard not to believe that these crimes will only grow more and more common. If you like this video, then subscribe and remember to hit the notification bell. We have several new videos coming out every single week that we know you'll want to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you soon.